Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. I'll be reading to the end of the chapter. This is what Holy Scripture says. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you have your Bibles with you, please do open to the book of Ephesians as we continue our little cursory view of the book of Ephesians. We'll be in chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, beginning around uh, verse 22 this morning. Kids, I don't know if you've ever thought about getting married. Have you ever thought about getting married? If you're a kid, ever thought about getting a husband or getting yourself a wife? Maybe not. Being single is just fine, and that honors the Lord too. I do have a little advice for you, young ladies. If you're thinking about getting married someday, someday's going to come and you think you're going to find Mr. Right. You'll be so excited. You found Mr. Right. Just make sure his first name is not always. Uh, you got to think about it. Uh, listen, getting married is, do you need a moment for that? Mr. Always Right, that's how that works. Okay. Um, getting married is one path that people take. It's not one that everybody has to take, but it's one path that people take. And it's something the Bible has a lot to say about. Actually, I'll rephrase that. The Bible has something to say about it. It doesn't have a lot to say about it. It has just actually very little to say about it, but very specific things to say to you and to me. Things that make a Christian marriage unique from a non-Christian marriage. At least your marriage should be unique. 
So in this little series, Let's Just Act Like Christians, I'm wanting to go into this part of Ephesians with the goal, I guess you could say, of, of having us, well, let's just at least act like we're Christians in our marriages. Let's align our marriages to our new identity in Christ. That's been the whole idea here in Ephesians. Let's, let's get this process of becoming what we are. Let's, let's reactivate that so we're not just satisfied with being, frankly, worldly in how we're living our lives. Imagine you move to a new country if you've done that. When you go to a new country, you're trying to adopt the customs, the clothing, the conversation of the people there of your new land. Well, you are a citizen of a new kingdom, and you're learning to act like it as a new citizen. Lots of you emigrated here from other countries, and you know that it can take a long time to understand and adopt a new culture. Uh, there's a sense where that's true for all of us as Christians. We need a manual to instruct us, and we need some honest friends who are going to tell us when we're sort of crossing the lines of cultural expectations. And thankfully, you and I have both as Christians. We have our Bible as our manual, and we have our fellow church members as those friends who are going to say, hey, you're not really living according to the manual. And, and the result of, of this personal transformation is that you start to look different. You, you act differently from other people at, in your home, at, at your workplace, with your neighbors, everywhere, because the, the speech patterns, the ways of, of doing things that you're adopting as a Christian, they're, they're not Canadian, they're not Sri Lankan, they're not American, they're Christian. And, they're, and because of that, they're heavenly, they're otherworldly, if you like. And there's a sense where when we sing this sometimes, this world is not my home, right? And there's a sense where we don't belong here. We never quite belong to the culture in which we live because we're adopting a heavenly culture. And that's because those, those values, those ways of living that we're trying to bring into our lives, they reach way back, like way back past the fall into sin. They, they reach back to a more noble time. The, the values and ways that a fallen world often judges to be enslaving, unfair, joyless. We look at these things as, as gracious gifts from God to be embraced and enjoyed. And marriage, which is the topic of this sermon, is one of those gifts that God gives to his people. So is something like labor. I don't know if you know that, but work is not a result of the fall. <laughs> it's pre-fall. God gives the gift of labor. God gives the gift of marriage. Another thing that God gives that you may not have thought much about is the gift of authority. In fact, the grace or the gift of authority is essential to understanding what Paul's getting at in Ephesians chapter 5 when he's talking about these distinct roles for a husband and for a wife. And so I want to speak about marriage, but I'm actually going to spend the brunt of my time speaking about authority. Otherwise, I'm convinced you will not understand the roles which God lays out. They won't make any sense to you 
And so let me try and explain this in in three parts. The first one is this. Authority is a gift. Authority is a gift. So authority, like work or labor, is a gift. Now, does that sound strange to your ears? (laughs) It might, because authority is one of those things that is so frequently misused. And listen, when it's misused, it can lead to horrific abuse. And I would argue that your Bible understands that. Here's Proverbs 28, verse 15. Listen to this. Like a roaring lion or a charging bear is a wicked ruler over a poor people. And if you're a person who's suffering under the charging bear. So here, here you have a, a power that is stronger than you that is, that is being used against you in evil ways, a charging bear. If, if you're suffering under that power, you may be tempted to think that the real problem here is authority itself. If we could just remove authority and get everybody on an equal playing field, everything will be fine, right? But is the problem authority? I want you to imagine with me a a great kingdom in centuries past. And in this great kingdom, the, the, the people of that kingdom decide to make a toddler their king. And so they hand that little guy the scepter of the king, which the scepter is that golden rod he holds, which represents his authority. But he's a toddler. So sometimes he just drags that scepter around behind him. Other times he leaves it in his playroom. Uh, he, he forgets about it one day. He drags it along the floor. He smashes stuff with it another day because he's a toddler. And what he doesn't fully understand, however, is that in this kingdom, if anyone is touched by the end of that scepter, they must be put to death. And he's swinging that thing around willy-nilly, and, and, and people everywhere, innocent people, are dying because they're being struck by the scepter. Now, the problem is not the scepter. The problem is the one who wields it. Think of authority as, that, as a scepter. As a thing, authority is a gift. It's a moral good that comes from God himself, who, by the way, is the highest authority of all. He works all things, Ephesians 1.11, after the counsel of his will. There is no authority higher than God, which is, when, which is why, rather, when the persecuted church is praying for God's help, they begin their prayer with these words, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the seas and everything in them. That's who you're praying to. The highest authority of all. Which is why David writes, who himself is a great king, he says, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. And then in another psalm, Psalm 47, 7, for God is the king of all the earth. And if you stop and, re- and think about it, you realize that the Bible begins with an authority statement. 
Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are are God's declaration of authority. God is claiming ownership and authority over all things. I made them. In the beginning was God, and God created the heavens and the earth. Ownership, authority. And then he takes some of that of his authority and he distributes that to the only creatures he made in his image and likeness. This is Genesis 1:26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. That's an authority word. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the livestock, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And that means that all human authority, all right, all human authority, where does it come from? It comes from God. All human authority is derived authority. It comes from one source, which is precisely what Paul was getting at in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, when he wrote, for there is no authority except from who? Except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. All human authority is derived authority. This is why Jesus responds to Pilate the way he does. Pilate says to him, will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless that authority had been given you from above. Think about what Jesus says there. Evil Pilate, sinful Pilate, you have authority that was given you from God. All human authority, even in the wicked rulers, is a derived authority. All authority is distributed by God as God sovereignly chooses. But just because the authority itself comes from God does not mean it's always used in God-honoring ways. Pilate proves that. In other words, the problem is not the scepter. The problem is the toddler who wields it. The problem is not authority. The problem is the sin in the people who are using that authority. Thankfully, there are good examples of authority too. Uh, You can turn for a moment to 2 Samuel 23 if you like. This is David's last words. And David begins by saying... uh, I, speaking of himself, I was anointed, in other words, set apart to be the ruler by God. I'm anointed. I was raised on high, put in a position of authority. This is poetic language where David is talking about his authority. And in that position of authority, he says, and by the way, God told me to write a description of what the godly use of authority is does. And that's what you get here. So 2 Samuel 23, verse 1. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, position of authority, the anointed of the God of Jacob, position of authority, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. Authoritative claim to revelation. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. Wow. God has given David something to say. What is it? Here it is. 
These are God's words that he gives to David to tell us. When one rules justly over men ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. This is very interesting. There were a couple occasions in David's life where he badly abused his authority. But here, David is instructed by God to tell us what the good use of authority looks like. And and God says that when authority is used by human agents, when that authority is used correctly, it's like the hope of a new dawn. It's like the sun shining on fertile fields watered by the life-giving rain. In other words, a ruler who uses his authority well blesses and protects and prospers his citizens. In other words, authority is a gift. It is a good. And that is seen most clearly when authority is used correctly. So whether it's in your workplace or whether it's in the government or whether it's in your school or your marriage, as we'll see in a moment, Christians should have this posture of always trying to stabilize and sanctify authority in the broader culture. What do I mean by stabilize? I mean, I think as Christians, when we understand that authority itself is a gift from God, it's morally neutral in that sense, morally good, but it can be used negatively and positively, then we ought to be doing all we can to support authority as a principle. But that, that might look, be, there might be some toddler whipping around a scepter somewhere, but that doesn't mean we have to mock authority or disregard authority or throw away the scepter. We can identify the misuse of authority, but we're fools if we think the solution to the abuse of authority is to put the scepter in the closet or the trash heap. Authority is a good gift from God. And not only do we seek to stabilize authority in the world, but we also seek to help sanctify it, meaning a part of our role as salt and light seems to be to help those people who have authority to use that authority well, to counsel and encourage in such a way that David's, their use of authority is more like the dawning of the morning sun in David's language than it is a Category 5 hurricane. Now, in my opinion, it's always it's, it's always a little bit sketchy, always a little bit dangerous to interpret your own days. But I think there's a fair bit of evidence floating around to suggest that our world is suffering from a convulsion of rebellion against authority. All authority. And I think it's partly because we've made authority itself the enemy. Like it's a bad thing. And I think Satan is rejoicing at this. Remember, if Genesis 1 and 2 were a declaration of God's authority, what's Genesis 3? It's a sinful declaration of independence. It's a declaration of rebellion against God's authority. When, when the Satan comes to Eve, what's he saying? You won't really die. He's, he's questioning the authority of the Almighty Creator. He said you would die. Now you're not going to die. And when Adam and Eve take of the fruit and eat, at that moment, 
Sin works like this slow-release cyanide capsule in every good authority structure in the world. Our problem is sin, not authority. And that's true in marriage. When God is telling Adam and Eve what's going to happen now that they've sinned, he says to the woman, Genesis 3.16, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Contrary desires, authority. We are bent, I think, to react to the abuses of authority with the wrong solutions. We try to chuck the scepter rather than change how the authority is being used. And Christians are not immune to this. According to the Bible, all of us are under authority. You may not want to be under authority, but you're under authority. We're all under the authority of God. He is the head of all rule and authority. Colossians chapter 2. You don't get a choice on that one. Men and women are under the authority of their government. We already alluded to Romans chapter 13. Children are under the authority of their parents. Ephesians chapter 6. Members are under the authority of their elders. Hebrews chapter 13. Um, if you take the, the slave master sort of uh, language there and and Transfer some of that into the, the workplace. You might say that employees are under the authority of their employers. You can look at First Peter 1, later here in Ephesians, and other places. In other words, authority is one of God's good gifts to structure our world so that we don't end up devouring each other. What happens when authority is undermined? We know from our own Bible, the last verse of the book of Judges, when authority was chucked out the window. In those days, there was no king, no authority in Israel. Do you know the next line? Everyone did what was right in what? His own eyes. That's what happens when you have no authority. Everybody just does what they want. In other words, here in Judges, Israel had eroded to the survival of the fittest, or if you like, the survival of the luckiest. I'm not sure which it is. Something like modern Somalia, if you, if you know what's going on in Somalia, where there's no governing authorities and, and it's, it's just sort of civil war all the time. Authority is a good. Without authority, we are bent on self-destruction. Authority is not an evil and remember, I'm just, I'm just talking about authority, and I'm going to apply all of this to your marriage, married people. <laughs> Maybe your future marriage, kids. Authority can be misused. It is often misused, often abused. But when we read our Bibles, we're given instructions and we're given models of how to navigate when Navigate the times when any authority, whether it's Christian or non-Christian in your marriage or outside of your marriage, is using that authority improperly. I mean, these are familiar things. Any time, any authority, whether it's Christian or not, prohibits you from doing what God explicitly commands you to do. I'm choosing my words very carefully. When God explicitly says you must do this thing and some human authority tells you you must not, well, then you disobey the human authority. We know this. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles are imprisoned for preaching Jesus. Now listen to this. An angel shows up in the prison and says this to these men. 
Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. That is a direct command with very specific things. Go to the temple and say this and do it now. And then he releases them miraculously from the prison. And what do they do? They have an explicit word from God. They had already been told not to preach. Now God, through an angel, tells them they must preach. And so they they don't obey the human authority. They obey God's authority. They go and they preach. The religious leaders show up, tell them, what are you doing? You can't do this. Stop doing this. And then you receive the famous words of Peter, we must obey God rather than men. Notice the must. We must obey God rather than men. We were given an explicit word. An angel was over here a minute ago, and he told us what God wanted us to do, which was to come to this temple and speak about this gospel at this moment. And then everything was fine, right? No, not everything was fine. They got beaten. They got beat up by the religious leaders, yelled out to never do it again. And interestingly, it says, they went away rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name. In fact, you might want to look at your Bible and all the times when people choose this path of obeying God rather than men, there seems to be a very direct link with joy in their suffering, not anger. So if you get an explicit command from God in the Bible to do something and some human authority in your life tells you not to do it, you must obey God rather than men. God's authority is, it always trumps man's authority in this kind of case. And and in doing so, you've got to be willing to suffer for it. And then you can test your suffering, if it's really godly suffering, by the level of your joy. Read 1 Peter if you want to think about joy and suffering for doing what God wants you to do. Likewise, anytime an authority, Christian or not, commands you to do something your Bible explicitly forbids, well, you should disobey that authority. If your boss tells you to lie, you should say to your boss, I'm sorry, I'm not going to lie because God told me not to lie. There is a commandment about it, and there's New Testament commands about it. I will not, I cannot lie. I must obey God rather than men. And if you get fired for that, you rejoice that you are counted worthy to suffer for the name. I think part of the trouble here is just we're, we're just not very good at navigating these situations. And honestly, that's because so many times they're not really cut and dry, are they? They're a little bit fuzzy. For example, a wife may feel that her husband is forbidding her from doing something that God wants. And she doesn't really have a Bible verse for it, but she thinks that's probably what the Lord wants. But in reality, it's not something God commands. And as good and as wise and as right as it may seem... She, she may feel that that gives her a right to not submit to her husband. You can think of many examples of this in your workplace. I think we often forget that the word submission in the very word itself implies doing things you don't want to do. It, when, when dad comes and says, Let's go to Canada's Wonderland. And you say, okay, I'll go. That's not submission. When he says, please go outside and shovel the snow, and you go, that's probably closer to submission. 
our, we get confused because we elevate our opinions to the matter of God's explicit word. If you can't chapter and verse it, you better pause and reverse it. Most situations in life are full of context, nuance, opinion, prudence. But if rebellion, right, this is what Samuel said to Saul, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. God looks at rebellion in us on the same that he looks at, at you know, dabbling in the mystic arts. It's evil in his sight. If that's true, you want to be really, 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 really sure that your disobedience of any authority is grounded in the explicit text of God's word. I think we often fail at this because we're well-meaning. We can't conceive of how God is going to accomplish his agenda in the world through a bad authority, through an evil authority. But when that happens, we should be pondering the words of Jesus. You would have no authority over me at all, Pilate, unless it had been given you from above. And think about what Peter preached a few days later. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this is Acts 2, 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God determined to allow a toddler to wield the scepter for his purposes. Acts chapter 4, Peter again, for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Beloved, the single greatest abuse of authority in the history of the universe was the cross. The only sinless person to ever walk the earth decided not to rebel against the authority, but to submit to it, for he understood through the revealed will of God, not my will, but what? Yours be done. He obeyed the higher authority. That was his explicit revealed truth of his father, that he would suffer in order to save us. Has he saved you? Have you repented from your own rebellion against his authority in the world, for instance, and turned to him to be your savior? Look at how much Jesus loves his people. He is so committed to the prosperity and the life and the health and the blessing of his people that he chooses to not disobey an unjust authority in order to save people like you and me from our sins. Which means you ought to run to him who loves his people so much because he can give you the life and the joy and the peace, not just in this life, but in the life to come. The gospel is a wonderful offer, but the gospel, according to Paul in Romans chapter one and Romans chapter 16, the gospel is something to be obeyed. Have you obeyed the gospel? Have you submitted to the ultimate authority of God who looks at you and says, repent and believe in my son? What a kind thing God would command of all of us. 
For when we do, he truly saves us. Now, you might be thinking, what does all this have to do with my marriage? Well, a lot. Let me try and explain how. I don't think you will understand the distinct role of a husband and the distinct role of a wife until you have these thoughts of authority clear in your mind. So this takes me to number two. Submission is a choice. Submission is a choice. The word the biblical authors use for submission, hupotasso, to place under, it means basically that, to put yourself under. Agency is important here. Submission is not removing agency. Submission is the is the act of agency. I am choosing to put myself under the authority. That is what submission means. It is to voluntarily place yourself under the authority of another. A husband is never told in the Bible to subject his wife to his will. The wife is called to place herself willingly under her husband's authority. Authority which he has as a result of being in the role of husband. Just listen to these Bible verses. See if you notice anything repeating itself. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to or be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct or behavior of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Colossians three eighteen, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Or here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, Wives, Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Let's just focus on Ephesians 5 for a minute. What does Paul write here? He says, Christ is, that's the undeniable status or position in the relationship. Christ is the head or the authority. It doesn't mean source. It means authority. Just like your head controls your body. It, it leads your body. It processes information. It leads. That's the sort of metaphor that he's using here. The, the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. And the church does submit to, the church does place itself under the authority of Christ. This is where Paul, this is where he's arguing from. He says, just look at Jesus and the church. Jesus is the authority, he's the head. The church is under his authority and the church chooses to put itself under the authority of Jesus. And he makes the comparison. The husband is the head of his own wife. The word own is really important. Never in the Bible does it say that all men are the authority over all women, that all women must submit to all men. Never says that. The husband is the head of his own wife. The wife does submit to her own husband. Does not tell her to submit to every man. Does not tell her to submit to every husband. Just says submits to her own husband. 
Now, I am not like a total Neanderthal. I understand that these words are not popular in our culture. <laughs> um, I just have a word for you. They have never been popular in any culture. <laughs> because since Genesis chapter 3, we have hated authority. And if you think authority in and of itself is evil, no wonder you don't like hearing, wives, submit to your own husbands. Submit to my husband. Do you know my husband? I, I might, actually. And yes. Submit to my husband in everything. Did, did somebody insert the words in everything there? Is that at a later textual edition? No, that's Paul, sorry. In fact, it happens frequently. Submission is a choice on the part of a wife to put herself under the authority of her husband. Now, how does authority relate to the husband in that marital union? This takes me to number three. Love is the key. I want to take you back for a moment. You remember that picture that David painted of the godly use of authority from 2 Samuel 23? When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Husband, you may want to just take that one to heart. Is the sun dawning under your roof? The godly use of authority is, what's it doing? In the, in the metaphor of this little poetic statement, what's it doing? It's giving life. It's spreading joy. It's offering protection. It's a beautiful thing. Have you ever noticed what Paul does not write in Ephesians? He does not write, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, lead your wives. Husbands, domineer your wives. Husbands, rule your wives. Husbands, boss your wives. Husbands, decide everything for your wives. He says, husbands, love your wife. Let me just be clear. It's not like stir up all the warm fuzzies you had when you were dating love. This love is a call to die. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said that uh, any good marriage book should be found in the atonement section of your library, not the ethics section. Why? Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. A husband is only using his marital authority properly when he's holding on to that scepter with dead hands. Hands that have died to all self-interest, self-indulgence, and self-promotion. The standard, okay, against which every husband should be measuring himself is Jesus on the cross. Husbands, love your wives as, just as, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That giving up language, that's the language of sacrifice. It's the vocabulary of death. Jesus chooses, right? He chooses to lose everything 
in order for his church to be beautified. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, sanctified, washed, spotless, holy forever and ever. Jesus loves his church so much that he lays down his life for her so that he can heal her of all of her sins, all of her failings, all of her faults, and make her glorious and and beautiful and spotlessly sinless. Young husband, it's as if Jesus is looking at you from his cross this morning and says to you, love her like this. Do you notice another thing Paul does not write in Ephesians 5? He never even hints at the idea He never says, once your husband is leading and loving like this, submit to him. Once your wife is submitting to you, love her. No. Because you have a higher authority, and you're living out that authority in your marriage relationship. Husband, you love when she is most unsubmissive. Wife, you submit when he is most unloving. Your responsibility is not to wait until the other does what they're supposed to do. Verse 28, look at it. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. How committed are you to the comfort and health of your body? You're very committed to it. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we're members of his body. Paul's saying a lot of things there, but one thing you've got to get is like when you stub your toe, you think about your toe. You're very committed to the health and well-being of your own physical body. That's the level of commitment husbands are to have toward wives. It's the kind of commitment that Jesus had toward his church, his bride, all the people he was going to die to save. Which means, since this was all in God's mind before the creation of the world, including before the creation of marriage, That means that marriage is not an example of Christ and the church. Rather, Christ and the church are an example to every marriage. This is what a marriage should look like. Christ's love for his submissive bride is the prototype that your marriage is supposed to be looking at, to copy. That's why Paul quotes from Genesis 2.24, the marriage of Adam and Eve, here in verse 31 of Ephesians 5. It's a quote. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Why is he quoting that? He tells you, verse 32, this mystery is profound. I'm saying that it, the two becoming one, that, that it refers to Christ and the church. Husband, when you use the authority God has granted you in your marriage to die to yourself and to love your bride, you're displaying to the world something of the wonder of the gospel, of free grace, of real love. I thought about calling this sermon your evangelistic marriage. 
You see, if you're getting these categories of authority and submission and love all figured out, you're going to be living with a whole different set of values and actions that's going to paint an amazing portrait of God's redeeming love. You will preach Jesus just by how you relate to one another as husband and wife, by your little marriage. So Paul pulls it all together, verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Authority is a gift. Submission is a choice. Love is the key. Once you understand what authority is, you learn to fulfill your particular role in relation to authority in your marriage. So the husband uses his authority to love his wife. The wife puts herself under her husband's authority to love her husband. But think about this. When a husband chooses to love, what does he do? He dies to himself and he serves his wife. When a wife chooses to submit to her husband, what does she do? She dies to herself and chooses to serve her husband. Which means the more each spouse understands and lives out their respective role in the marriage relationship, the more they'll look alike. Or to use the words of the Bible, the two become one. Being a Christian, brothers and sisters, being a Christian is not like emigrating to Canada. (laughs) When you move to Canada, you arrive to a multicultural nation. And when, we're, when Canada's at her best, she's inviting people to come to Canada and live here, but you can please continue to talk and dress and act the way you did back home, and, and we celebrate that, and we love that. I don't know about you, that's one of the things I most love about living in the city of Toronto. It's really fun, and it's really cool. But that's actually entirely different than joining God's kingdom, because he demands total and complete loyalty. In fact, we're to shed every trace of our old citizenship and make this intense commitment to learning the rules and the ways of our new citizenship. As Stuart Alliott said, if the gospel is unable to transform people at home, we must conclude that it's unable to transform people at all. Or to put it another way, My married brothers and sisters, if your marriage looks like everybody else's in the world, you are missing something profound. He is calling you to a nobler way, a higher and a more beautiful way that will make you distinct in the world and the apple of his eye. Let me pray. So, Father, help us to be these people Every husband and every wife I'm imagining is feeling a little bit like me and very, very eager for grace right now, very eager for help, very eager to take off the clothes of the old way of living and put on the clothes of the new man, the new woman. Help us to become who we are in you. Don't let a single one of us leave here believing that our marriage is out of reach, It's gone too far. It's irredeemable. That's nonsense. 
You're God. You could open the Red Sea. You can fix a marriage. Ain't no thing for you, Lord. So please help us. Help us to do what might be very hard to do in the coming days. To live under your authority by rejoicing in the authority structures you've put in our homes. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.